You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. All right, good morning again. Like I said, my name is Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here. I oversee the preaching and theology of the church, and it's great to be with you here this morning. Here at Grace Point Church Northwest, we exist within a collective of churches here in the Las Vegas Valley. We currently have two churches, one here at Peterson, and I just want to welcome you again, and we also have one at Ann and Allen. And together, we live out one mission, which is to make disciples of Jesus that live in community for the community. And like you've heard me say over the past couple of weeks, we have a tremendous opportunity this October to live for our community, to be for our community, and that is by throwing a big, huge party in the Peterson parking lot on October 25th. What we are going to do is called a trunk or treat, and what we are asking the Northwest Church to do is to raise one ton of candy that we're just going to give away. Now, rumor has it, maybe you saw on Instagram, that maybe I said something like, if we get one ton of candy, I'm going to shave my head. Now, I don't know who took that picture, I don't know who posted it, but here's what I'll say. If we get one ton of candy, Pastor John Lee is going to dye his hair bright yellow, okay? And so I said it, if he's in here, he's not in here. I think he's the one who posted it. But anyway, we're just playing around, but you might see both of us actually do something to our heads if we get one ton of candy. So if you want to see me bald and John walk around like a light bright, then bring in one ton of candy, okay? Who's with me on that? Now, 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 who would just bring in one ton of candy because they love this city? Who would bring in one ton of candy because they want to see John and I do something dumb to our heads? Okay, I see where your heart is, okay? You need to repent, all right? But anyway, no, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a trunk or treat. We're just going to give away the candy. I think we did the math. If we get like 600 people, every child gets three pounds of candy. I mean, that's incredible. They don't even have to go out on Halloween, right? So we love the parents too. So make sure you do that. Just drop it off in the radio flyer, and then each week we'll update you on how much candy we got. Last week, we only got two bags of, uh, what are they, blow pops. Okay, so you guys got some work to do if you want to see this gone. That's all I'm saying. All right, cool. Let me pray for us again, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through your son, Jesus. And I just pray right now, Father, as we go through the word, that you will just speak to our hearts the way you see fit. You say in Isaiah that when your word goes forth, it does not come back void, but it accomplishes its purpose. And so God, may we submit ourselves to you and may your word accomplish the person you de- purpose you desire for each and every person in this room this morning. God, you are amazing, you are good, you are loving, and you sent us Jesus to share your love with us without a scrap of our assistance. May we honor you this day. We love you, we pray us in your name, amen. Cool. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, feel free as you leave today, swing by the connect to your table. We got free Bibles both in English and in Spanish, and we'd love to give you one of those as well. We're going to continue in our study through the Gospel of John. We've called this the book of John that you may believe because that is John's entire reason for writing this book. He wants you and me to believe in Jesus. And I believe today what John is going to do is he's going to challenge you and me on the reasons for why we follow Jesus. Who in here has ever heard of a bandwagon fan before? Anybody? So what is a bandwagon fan? I'm glad you asked. A bandwagon fan is somebody who follows the team, not because they have any loyalty to that team, but they follow that team because it can serve them, or maybe they're on a winning streak. It does something good for them. 
And I can't tell you how much bandwagon fans absolutely annoy me. I mean, they absolutely annoy me. You see, I come from Kentucky originally, and I'm a diehard Kentucky Wildcat fan. And one year in the national championship, the University of Kentucky was playing this team called the Syracuse Orange Men. Some of you have heard of them. Now, one of my friends decided, hey, I'm all of a sudden a Syracuse fan. They're my favorite team. Why did he do that? For what end? For what purpose? To annoy me. That's just purely it. The church that I was a part of decided to show the national championship on the big screen in the main auditorium. So I showed up. I had my UK stuff on. And guess what my friend did? He showed up with an orange wig. He had an orange jersey. I believe he had his face painted. And he was the biggest heckler during the entire thing. I would scream out, who's their point guard? His answer, I don't know. I don't care. They're winning right now. And he just kept coming at me, coming at me, coming at me. Well, eventually, it was really no question, Kentucky won, okay? And so they ended up winning. I kept my Kentucky jersey. I kept my Kentucky hat. I kept my loyalty to the team. But what did my friend do? He discarded it all. I think the wig was in the garbage can before he even hit his car. He was done. Why? The Syracuse Orangemen no longer served him. They no longer fulfilled his goal. And this morning, John is going to show us today, there is a big difference between being a bandwagon follower of Jesus and being an actual follower of Jesus. So let's check that out. Verse 60, it says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? If you were with us last week, you realize that Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of the day, and they were struggling with some of Jesus' words. And what we see here is not only were the religious leaders struggling, but so were some of Jesus' disciples. Now, when we read this word disciple here, Jesus is not talking to his 12, if you will. Many of us know that Jesus has 12 disciples, but rather, he's possibly talking about a large group. Up to this point in Jesus' life, not only were 12 following him, but there was potentially hundreds, if not thousands of people following Jesus. And as we'll see here in just a bit, they're following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And the reason for that is because they're nothing more than bandwagon followers. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 6, we realize how this whole thing got started with Jesus and these crowds. He basically took a young boy's lunchable of five barley loaves and two small fish, and he turned it into a feast, into a buffet, right? And so what happened? The people started following him, and they tried to force Jesus to be their king. Because who doesn't want a king who's just going to provide free lunch all the time, right? Sounds good. I mean, think about it. It's basically a buffet every single day. But Jesus, knowing this, withdraws. And here's the reason why. Jesus has not come to, be, to bring physical bread that perishes. We have learned over this chapter, Jesus didn't come to bring bread. Jesus came to be bread that lasts forever. But when Jesus withdrew, the crowds followed him because they had a growl in their stomach. And when they found Jesus, they looked at him and they basically wanted more bread. And with that, Jesus gives them a very vivid and somewhat gross illustration of what it means to believe in God to believe in him. And what does he say? If you were with us last week, he basically said, you got to eat my flesh and you got to drink my blood. Now, Jesus was not condoning cannibalism. Okay, you heard me say last week, Willy Wonka is right. It's looked down upon in many societies. Jesus did not expect anybody to come up and just take a slice of him and start chewing. But what Jesus was doing was providing a vivid metaphor of what it means to look and to believe in him. And all Jesus is saying is this, just like you depend on physical food in this life, you have to depend on me for eternal life. 
You and I, when we eat food, we take it in, we chew it, we swallow it, we digest it. It becomes a part of us. And the same way to believe in Jesus is to feast upon Jesus, to stay with Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus, and to trust in Jesus. We look to him and we believe. Why would Jesus push this point? It's because throughout this entire chapter, what Jesus is doing is he's pushing you and me to believe in him. John has told us, this is the reason he wrote this book. He wants you and me to believe in Jesus. And what this does is reveal our greatest problem in this life. So many of us mistakenly believe that our greatest problem in this life is physical, but it's not, it's spiritual. In Mark chapter two, in another biography of Jesus' life, Jesus is teaching potentially, look in the text, in his house in Capernaum. And crowds came and started pushing their way into the house. The crowd got so big that nobody could get in. And we read this story of this guy who's a paralytic, and his friends decide to take him to Jesus because Jesus does what? He heals people. And so they take him up on the roof of the house because Jesus, nobody could get in to see him. They dig a hole through the roof, and they lower this guy down. I mean, picture the scene. Here you are. Imagine this place so packed, shoulder to shoulder, standing room only, and all of a sudden there's a hole in the middle of the roof, and this guy comes right down before us. He's a paralytic. He cannot walk. He's never been able to walk. And with that, Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you think that's what that guy was expecting? No, that guy wanted to walk, right? I mean, the friends are digging through the roof. I imagine they're like, hey, we didn't go to all this effort just so you can forgive him. But he says, so that you know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and walk. He does eventually heal him, but he talks to him first about his sin because you and I need to understand the biggest issue in our life is not physical, it's spiritual. There was a bigger issue in this man's life than his ability to walk, and that was to be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of his sins. Just like that greater need in that man's life, there's a greater need in these so-called disciples' life, and there's a greater need in our lives too. Several years ago, I read a story about a young man who got into a fight with his father, and he decided to leave home. He continued to keep in touch with his mother and wanted very badly to come home for Christmas, but was afraid his father would not allow him. His mother wrote him and urged him to come home, but he did not feel he could until he knew his father had forgiven him. So finally, there was no more time for any more letters. His mother wrote and said she would talk to the father. And if he had forgiven him, she would tie a white cloth on a tree which grew alongside the railroad tracks near the home, which he could see before the train reached the station. If there was no white cloth, it would be better if he just went on. So the young man started for home. The train drew near his home and he was so nervous he said to his friend who was traveling with him, I cannot bear to look. Sit in my place, look out the window. I'll tell you what the tree looks like, and you tell me if there is a white cloth on it or not. So his friend changed places with him and looked out the window. After a bit, he said, oh yes, I see the tree. The son asked, is there a white cloth tied to it? For a moment, the friend said nothing. Then he turned and in a very gentle voice said, there is a white cloth tied to every limb of that tree. In some sense, Jesus Christ is the white cloth our Heavenly Father is tied to the tree, to the cross of Calvary, signaling that it's safe for us to come home to his love. You and I need that. 
That is what our souls are longing for. Jesus says as much, just a few verses before this, in John 6, verse 40, he says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to say, what's God's will for my life? Am I supposed to go to this school or this school? Am I supposed to marry her or not? Marry him or not? Date him, her, not? Like, they, we got all these questions. What does Jesus say the will of the Father is? What's God's will for your life? That you look to the Son and believe. That's his will. And that's the question you and I have to ask ourselves this morning. Have you looked? Have you believed? This morning, we're going to see a picture of somebody who has, through baptism, here in just a little bit. That as they go under the water, what does it symbolize? They're identifying with Christ's death. That Jesus died for them and instead of them in their place. And as they come out of the water, what does it show us? That they're identifying with Jesus' resurrection. Just like he walked out of the grave, so too will they walk out of the grave and be with him forever. That's what our hearts need. And the question is, have you trusted in him? Is he the utmost affection of your heart? You see, the bandwagon fans, they didn't want forgiveness. They wanted something else. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, John tells us these so-called disciples said that Jesus' statements were hard sayings. Now, when we hear that, we think they didn't understand, but that is not what they're saying. They're hard sayings, meaning they're hard to accept. Jesus tells us right here that he knew within himself they were what? Grumbling. And what was their attitude towards him? They were offended. They were absolutely offended. You see, you and I can only be offended if we understand what is being communicated. Think about it in regards to gestures. Some of us in this room, we give a thumbs up to somebody. What are we saying? Good job, right? Just like Pastor John here. Good job. Way to go. Nobody, when we look at that, takes offense to that. That just looks goofy. But I read this past week that a thumbs up in other cultures doesn't mean good job, but it could be telling somebody off. And so what we realize is on our website, we actually have a picture of Pastor John putting two thumbs up. And so he's doubly offending part of the world. That's what we saw. Think about it. Somebody gives you the okay sign. Some of you in here would interpret that as, hey, we're good. But in other cultures, the okay sign symbolizes a body part that's close to the rear end. You would be offended if you understood what it meant. You and I give thumbs up, okay signs, we're good. But we're not offended until we understand what it means in another culture. And then we're like, not good at all. That's what's going on here with some of those who are following Jesus. They clearly understand what Jesus has been saying. But they're deeply offended. Why? Because what is Jesus saying that's so offensive? He says, I'm the bread of life. He said, I've not come to be, bring bread. I've come to be bread. He said last week, no one can come to him unless who draws them? God the Father. And then we also realize that Jesus was very, very clear about his origins and where he came from. You might remember in John 6, 41 through 42, we read this. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? They look at Jesus and they try to put him in a box. 
Yet Jesus will not allow himself to be put in anyone's box because he's not come to do his will or your will, but whose will? The Father's will. The people wanted Jesus, a, a Jesus, a Messiah, who was nothing more than a political leader, who would free them from Roman occupation by providing an endless buffet to fill their stomachs. And because of this, they tried to make Jesus king by force. And when he refused to become their king, they understood the gesture and they became offended. Many of us, we get this. We do not like it when people don't do what we want. I'm sure I'm not the only one who is heard in my house. Such and such won't play with me. Tell him or her to play with me. They promised. Why are they mad? Because they're not doing what they want. Or how about this? Tell such and such to give me the remote to turn that back on. I was watching it. What are they doing? Something they don't want them to do. And as we grow up as adults, we may not say it that exaggerated, but we're still saying it. There have been times in my life where my wife has done something I didn't want her to do, and I got mad. In the same way, there have been many times I've done something that she didn't want me to do, and she got mad. And I can't help but to think that many of us, like these so-called disciples, are coming to Jesus with a similar attitude. It's so easy for us to drip into being a bandwagon fan. Instead of following Jesus and doing his will, we ask Jesus to follow us, serve us, and to do what we want. And as we'll see here in just a bit, many of these followers of Jesus, so-called followers of Jesus, fall away. Just like my friend discarded that jersey because Jesus was no longer an advantage to him, no longer served them. That's why John is asking us, why are you following Jesus? Is it because you want something from Jesus? Or is it because you really want Jesus? John Piper says it like this. He says, the critical question for our generation, for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus was not there? Here's what we've got to understand. Many people in our society today, and I can't help but to believe some of us in this room, I know me over the course of my walk with Jesus, have tended to treat Jesus as nothing more than a big genie in the sky. That I just rub the lamp of Jesus and what does he do? He gives me wishes. And we end up going to Jesus because we think he will dispense prizes that will give you and me the best life now. But that's a way a bandwagon follower follows Jesus. You see, a true follower of Jesus goes to Jesus not to rub the lamp to get something from Jesus, to get a prize from Jesus, but rather they go to Jesus because they realize he is the prize. He's it. And when you have Jesus, you have everything. Many of us live with Jesus plus something equals everything. Jesus plus my house. Jesus plus my car. Jesus plus my reconciled relationship. Jesus plus my kids or whatever it is. We think that's everything, but the gospel says it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's gospel math. Some of you are like, I didn't come here for math, okay? But you've got to understand that. If you've got Jesus, you have zoe. It's a Greek word. You have life. And you have it right now. You see, Jesus goes on to try to graciously turn the hearts of those who are offended by him. Look at verse 62. 
then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus says, if you're offended by what I said, wait until you see what's next. I mean, make no mistake about it. Jesus is crystal clear about who he is. He's come from the Father. He's going back to the Father. And the road in between, what's at the end of it? A cross. And if bandwagon fans are offended by what he said, what will they think when he's hanging from a cross? Many of us have heard someone say something like this. If you think that is bad, wait until you see, and they usually fill in the blank. So like my kids will sometimes come home and they will say, hey, you think my English grade is bad? Wait until you see the rest of the report card, right? Or, or maybe some of you in the hotel, you've said something like this, like, oh, you think the room is bad? You do not want to go into the bathroom. Wait until you see that. What is that person doing? They're preparing you for something to come that is going to be worse. And it's almost as if Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's saying, you're offended by my words, but wait until you see my cross. And what he says is, is you and I will no longer, will not see the cross as something beautiful unless there's some divine assistance. There are many people in this world who are offended by the cross. They look at it and they go, absolutely not. I did not need that. God did not need to do that. I want nothing to do with that. We wear it around our neck. We put it on our walls. Yet it's a sign of torture and execution to many places around the world. And what Jesus says is this, you and I cannot look at it with a sense of joy. We'll be offended by it unless there's divine assistance. Listen to what he says, verse 63 through 65. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What did he say there? The flesh is no help at what? All. Your flesh, no help. Okay, we work it out. We try to make it better. We only, we, we're all like glue. We, like we do all that stuff to try to make the flesh good. But when it comes to a relationship with God, what does Jesus say? It's no help at all. It means you can't do it by your might and power. He says, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, that is why I told you that no one Okay, I'm just the mailman delivering the mail. I didn't write the letter. Listen to what he says. That is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. See, Jesus talks again about the inability of anyone to come to him without God's help. There is no way a bandwagon follower of Jesus will become a true follower of Jesus through their might and power. I'm reminded of John chapter 3. And some of you who are here that weekend, we talked about this religious guy by the name of Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. And Nick, if anyone could earn their way into God's good grace by their flesh and by their power and might, it had to be Nick, right? I mean, think about it. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. That means he adhered to meticulously the 613 laws of the Old Testament. Not only did he follow them, but he encouraged others to meticulously follow all 613 laws as well. And in John chapter 3, verse 10, it says that Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. Definite article, the. Think about it. We have heard of the Ohio State University. Why do they say that? Because there's no other university. Or maybe you've said something like the In-N-Out Burger or the Pumpkin Spice Latte. Why do you put the the before it? Because you're saying there is none that compares. 
And that's what the text is saying Nick is like. He is the predominant, preeminent teacher in Israel. And listen to what Jesus says to him in John 3, verse 5. It says this, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Think about it. All Nick's education, all of his obedience amounted to nothing when it became to being made right with God. Why is that? Because the flesh is no help at all. That's why Jesus would say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it granted him by the Father. Had the privilege of seeing all three of my kids born in hospitals here in Las Vegas. And you know, not one single time when my kid came out of the room did any three of them go, Dad, you see what I did? Man, that was awesome. My son was actually born less than an hour after arriving to the hospital. The room said janitor's closet, and inside was a bed and stuff. I always say he was born in a janitor's closet. On our phone, ringing the entire time was Beastie Boys, what you, what you, what you, what you want, which is mine, and Jess's was cake. No phone, no phone, I just want to be alone today. And so this is what was going on. And before the doctor could even get into the room, this nurse comes in, dressed for war, it looked like, and delivered my child. Now, when my son came out of that womb, he didn't say, Dad, you see what I did? That was awesome, record time. I even beat Grammy's voicemail. He didn't say that. Why? How much choice did any of my three kids have in being born? None. Why were they born? Because my wife and I wanted kids, and it was God's will for our family. In the same way, God brings new life to religious leaders and bandwagon fans simply because he wants to. Why are you a Christian if you're a Christian in this room? God wants you. That should be so freeing to you right now. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't deserve it. He just lavished it upon you because he's good. Because he knows that's what your heart truly needs. That's what he's done. And Jesus tells us, you know how someone is born of the Spirit? They cling to my words because my words are life. In the same way that my children all cling to my wife. Because by clinging to her, it wasn't like once they were born, they're like, we don't need you anymore, mom. They didn't start paying rent. You know what I'm saying? They didn't just start doing chores. But they needed her. Why? To feed them, to clothe them, to be protective of them. And just like children cling to my wife, Those who truly are born of God cling to obey and feast upon the words of Jesus. For the Spirit not only uses those words to bring life, but the Spirit uses the words of Jesus to sustain your life. And there should be no Christian in this room this morning who is malnourished. God has given us his book. We give them away for free here. And if you don't have one, please take it home and read it. Devour it. Fill your life up within it. Feast upon the Word of God. If you're like, I don't understand it, go get an ESV study Bible. It'll be one of the best purchases you can make. Look at the footnotes. There's guys in there who've done some heavy lifting and they can help you. For some of you in this room, and I will tell you this, this is no exaggeration. You need to go get the Jesus Storybook Bible or the Gospel Story Bible. And you'll go, Well, Travis, that's a kid's Bible. Yes and amen. And you know what each one of those Bibles do? They tell you how to read the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus. I was in a seminary Old Testament class. The question was, 
What books had more influence on your understanding of the Old Testament? What books were they? Everybody's talking about Goldsworthy and, you know, like whoever else the big Old Testament guys are. You know what I wrote? Jesus Storybook Bible. Gospel Story Bible. Why? Because it shows you how every story whispers his name. Read it. Get your Bible out. Get the kids' Bible out and read them together. That's not immaturity. That's maturity. I promise you. So do it. You see, with that, we see the reaction of the bandwagon followers. And so check it out. We'll finish up here. Listen to what it says. Verse 66 through 71. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Eventually we see that a lot of the bandwagon followers fall away. Either Jesus was no longer advantageous to them or potentially they heard Jesus teach something regarding the way they live financially, sexually, or ethically. And they go, well, that doesn't line up with my life. You're no longer a benefit to me, so I'm just going to discard you. See, John would eventually write another letter. And he would tell us in 1 John 2.19 why some people fall away. And listen to what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For, they had been, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See, what is humbling is what A.W. Pink, an old pastor and theologian, says. He says it like this. He says, the example of Judas shows us how near a man may come to Christ and yet be lost. You see, those who move from bandwagon fans to true followers are those who say, like Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, bandwagon followers look for an opportunity to leave, but true followers don't have a contingency plan. They don't have a prenuptial agreement, if you will. They're all in on Jesus, and they're not going anywhere. You think of marriage vows that stay true all the way to the end, you kind of got the idea. You see, on July 14, 2001, I made vows to my wife to forsake all others, be faithful to her as long as we both shall live. Now, here's what I'll tell you where it's different than with Jesus, because you don't break up with Jesus when you die. You and I don't move on, but rather when we die, we end up seeing him face to face. We see him in his glory. And so when we forsake all others, we be faithful to him for now and for eternity. And that's what Jesus has come to do. So what are you? Are you a bandwagon fan or are you a follower? Do you want Jesus or do you want what Jesus can give? These are questions that all of us have to ask, including your pastor. Because like the old hymn says, Oh Lord, I feel my heart's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Called, filled, led to leave the God I love. And what we need to be reminded of sweetly over and over and over again is what Peter says. 
Where else do I have to go? For you're my all in all. So many people that I've heard struggle with doubts that come to their Christian faith. You know the question that usually turns them back to the Bible is what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And they're like, I can't leave him. And so they stay in. And when they don't understand, they cling to Jesus until they get understanding. He's come not to be bread or bring bread. He's come to be the bread you and I truly need. Let's pray.